Okay, well, I ended, I ended this morning speaking a little bit about uh, Augustine of Hippo, and I want to pick up there. Uh, just to recall some of the, my, my remarks about Augustine. Now, Augustine, I don't know if I said this this morning, I'm sorry if I didn't. Uh, Augustine of Hippo is, uh, I would say, the most important theologian, uh, post-Bible post authors, uh, in the history of the church, most most theologians would uh, probably say that, especially in the Western tradition. And yet, as a teenager, is it, are we? Am I too loud? Okay. As a teenager and into his twenties, he increasingly saw the Christianity that he was raised in as naive and even embarrassing. Until one day, Augustine discovered that this was a childish coming of age story. That he and his friends simply liked to tell each other. In other words, he, he came to realize that he had a naive understanding about Christianity. He had misunderstood uh, Christianity in many different ways. And he also, required, he also began to understand something about himself. He began to understand something about all humans. Which is that in some measure all humans, not just Christians, live by faith. Everyone, in some sense, lives by faith. And his, his famous kind of language for this is translated uh, that he believes into, in order to understand. And in some sense, everyone is believing and trying to understand the world. He gave up on, on what I referred to earlier this morning as this kind of two plus two way to answering the big questions of life. And disillusioned and jaded, he entered into a period of skepticism. But one day, he stumbled, and I hope this, okay, that's going to be with us. Uh, <laughs> as I bent down, I kind of gave in. Uh, one, one day, he entered, a, he entered a church. He had made it all the way to Milan, which is kind of the center of power of the Roman Empire. And he went in, not because he was looking for religious truth, but... He went in because he was hoping he would hear Ambrose, the famous bishop, because he was known as a skilled speaker. So if you can imagine, maybe in the 90s, being in New York, being in Manhattan, maybe the center of power in the United States, kind of hearing about somebody speaking at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and kind of finding your way in. We, we've heard something about this Tim Keller and somebody might stumble in to, to hear what he might be saying, just because we hear he's a good speaker. I think that's kind of what's going on here in Milan. Center of power, Roman Empire, someone who's just known, who's, who's drawn interest, even from people who aren't even seeking, just to hear, in this case, Ambrose. But Augustine got more than he bargained for. Ambrose's preaching presented to him a very different space, a very different way to see Christianity than the version he got growing up. He was invited to look again at the faith that he thought he had grown out of. But at this point, Augustine is still very much unsure. He's willing to at least step into Christianity and try it on again. This time, however, he knew he wasn't going to discover the proof for Christianity in the same way he might prove a math equation, but instead he adopts a more rational view of rationality. He has become humbled. He's adopted a new posture. He had 
tried on a form of ancient rationalism. He tried on this kind of way to live, which was all about merit and achievement and making a name for himself. He tried on a kind of skepticism. He dabbled with a variety of different ancient philosophies. But as he tried these different forms on, he saw their problems, he became more humble, and he was willing to step in again. And the reason I tell him, and now, now we're leaving for, uh, we're leaving Augustine, if, if you're in my family, my, my son who's not here, he always just rolls his eyes, you know, he's like, oh no, Augustine again, here we go. Um, so we're going to leave Augustine. But I, the reason that I'm setting this up again with Augustine is because he lived in a kind of pluralistic age. He lived in an age um, that felt the contestability of faith. In, in, in a similar way that, that we do today. And in order to minister to someone, often we are going to have to ask them to imaginatively do the same. We're going to have to step in with people into different spaces. But we're also going to challenge them to say, you're going to have to live somewhere. To be human is to assign value and live towards some end. To be human is to be a social and a moral creature. To be human is to inhabit some kind of story about the world. We all intuitively do this. We think about the world via story. We think about our lives via story. And so the question for each of us, and the question for those we're, we're interacting with, is what, what story will you inhabit? What story is most rational? What space allows you, or what story allows you to flourish with others? In a world that is unstable and harsh. What practices bring true joy and stability? And this is what I was trying to do this morning in just one particular case by looking at Ehrman. By looking at, okay, can we step into what Ehrman is saying and see some of the problems with that? But now for, and if you're following on your, on your follow along with me on the sheet... I want us to step in and ask ourselves, what story do, do we actually inhabit? What story do you actually inhabit? Yes, you, we are Christians, so we affirm the creed, we affirm the story of the Bible. But I'm asking a deeper question. What story are you actually living out? If we're honest, our lives are often actually scripted by certain cultural narratives that are absorbed into our bloodstreams simply because they are part of the air we breathe every day. Now, there's, there's many I could have listed. I'm just, I'm, I've listed three here, and I want to talk about those just very briefly. One is what we might call a story of achievement. You are what you accomplish. Now, we're rarely explicitly told that, but there's really no need to be explicitly told that because the message is told to us in a million different ways. That story is told to us in a million different ways every day. This is evidenced by the $100 study sessions for a leg up on standardized testing that seems just the obvious thing to do. The need to always be winning the celebrity culture painting the picture of what looks like, well, real success. You know, in a hundred different ways, each day we're bombarded with little stories that tell us you can do it, you can be someone special if you achieve. 
If you get noticed, if you become famous, if you win, as one author has put it today, because of even the kind of moral posturing or the self-display with all the with the with, with with the social media world we live in, he said, we've traded the hope for immortality for a shot at going viral. So the number one job in America that kids aspire to is to be a social media influencer. But if we're honest, that, that, that world's actually ubiquitous. It's, it's not simply for, for, uh, for students, for kids, but now we live in an age where so much of even, even work, even our companies, we have to be really concerned about what kind of star reviews we get, right? Um, and so in some of this, it's, it's very difficult to, to run from, even, even if we want to. And how we, we posture ourselves in the midst of this story ends up not only impacting us, but it ends up, how, ends up impacting how we see success and we define success for our kids. Or how we direct our grandkids. How we talk about college. How we talk about picking a major. What careers they will aspire to. With over a thousand little nudges over a lifetime, we direct the people we mentor, our kids, to what true success looks like. The story of consumerism. We're bombarded by ads and movies and media, and the default story sold from us, sold to us from an early age is that the good life comes with a price tag. Naomi Klein, not, not a Christian author, has, has, but she, she does research into marketing. She, she says this, humans need community and narrative and transcendence. Think about those three things. What has Christianity always provided? Community, a narrative about the world, and transcendence. But she says the promise of most successful Companies, successful branding and marketing is that you can find each of these things if you will just go shopping again. And so we shop. We travel. We dream of future upgrades as we have our imagination shaped a little more than we like to admit perhaps by Southern Magazine, Southern Living, and the scenes from the Expedia commercials. This is the story of consumerism. I'm not trying to guilt any of us, by the way. This is not me making you feel guilty. I want us just to observe this. All right? In some ways, it's very difficult to avoid. I'm not saying we should just live in a kind of a box and try to hide out from these things. But we need to become aware of them. Okay? Let me give you the third one. The story of competition. Rather than trusting the, the God who clothes the lilies of the field and owns the cattle of a thousand hills, the God who created a world with superabundance and has graciously given us all things. We live in a story of scarcity today. This sense that we're living in a narrative of survival of the fittest, win or lose, killed or be killed. We see others primarily as competitors rather than companions on a journey. And so we're prone to grasp for, for control rather than trust in God. So we could, we could elaborate, we could have more stories, we could elaborate on each of these. But here's my point. These three stories can and often 
are, are stories that we live out as professionally Christians. And I know this in part because I see traces of them in my own life. We don't so much, on one, in, in one sense, we don't so much believe in them. It's simply that they're the inherited scripts from our culture that we unthinking, unthinkingly begin to live by. And so again, these aren't to make you feel guilty but I rather want to, want to do something else with them. I want to remind you just for a minute that they don't actually work. It's really practical. Yes, they're dishonoring to God. Absolutely. But they don't actually work. Because each of these scripts is, to, is directed to an end other than God. And so they become a kind of idolatrous pattern in our lives. This is why, again, I think we can learn from Secular authors and novelists who point this out in different ways. One of the famous ones is David Foster Wallace, and he famously said, In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Now, again, he's not talking about so much what people say they believe, but instead in how they actually act. And so he goes on to say this he says that whatever you sell out to in this world will eat you alive. He says, we're going to sell out, we're going to devote ourselves to something. And if you sell out to success, you will always fear failure. If you buy into that story of achievement, you will always fear not being enough, being found out. If you sell out to receive the love of others, you will live a fragile existence, constantly striving to secure affection. Constantly striving to be what C.S. Lewis called part of the inner ring. But you always feel like you're on the outside or about to get kicked to the outside. If you sell out to your career, you will end up one day being bitter and alone. So in this way, oh sorry, i got to mention Augustine one more time. In this way, like Augustine, who has tried out a version of Christianity and found it not to work. I think even as Christians, we're tempted to try out everything else. Sometimes we put that under the veneer of Christianity. Or sometimes, for some, they're a little bit more honest and and they just begin to walk away. And under these conditions, I think, one of the things that we need to do, one of these, under these conditions that I'm saying in some sense are ubiquitous, are all around us, it's the air we breathe, one of the things that we have to do is learn to recalibrate, to come back again and again, to adjust our posture in order to both strain to be honest about our own lives and then to see Christ clearly. To see the gospel clearly, or to use that phrase I used this morning, to fall back into the reality of Christ. And so, to do this uh, for the rest of our time, I want to, um, to use a metaphor that C.S. Lewis gives us in his what's an essay called Meditation and Toolshed. The quote is there, but let me just explain it to you, okay? So, he walks into a toolshed one day, and C.S. Lewis sees a beam of light. And of course, in the beam of light, he can see the dust particles. Most of us have had this experience walking into a shed or from a window in a house. You see that beam of light coming through, and everything else is pitch black. 
And that's one perspective. He's looking directly at the light. But then he talks about how he stepped over and he looked along the light beam. And he looked along the light beam and so he could look through to the outside where he sees. Well, let's just read it. I saw no tool shed. This is at the end of the quote there in your paper. I saw no tool shed and above all no beam. So no longer does he actually see the beam, but he's looking along the beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that 90 odd million, million miles away the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And what Lewis is saying, what Lewis is saying is Christianity, or he applies this in some of his other work even more directly to Christianity. He says, he says, Christianity, we have to look at it, but we also have to look through it. We have to look along the light. And so that's what I want us to do. And then I want to add to that and add to that metaphor and say we also need to step into the light. So three points here. Number one, looking at Christianity. To look at Christianity is to look at the core truth of the faith and examine it. This means, amongst other things, looking at the historical claim being made. Jesus died and he rose again. We're to come back. This, this isn't a claim that we, we kind of get and then we leave but we're to come back to this claim again and again. The intellectual humility that I spoke of this morning is not the same thing as intellectual apathy. Being humble is not the same as just turning your brain off. So we come back to the evidence. We come back to this core claim of Christianity. There's many accessible works that summarize the the scholarly historical work on the resurrection. I'm going to speak a little bit more about this and kind of summarize some of that in my sermon on Thomas tomorrow. But let me give you just a few suggestions if you, if you, and encourage you to look at these more. One is just the, the book that Tim Keller wrote in 2008, The Reason for God. He's got a short chapter on there on the resurrection which just summarizes a lot of the historical evidence. He uses the work of N.T. Wright. Uh, probably most of in that chapter. Uh, I've tried to do this in telling about a story, as well as Jack Carson and I in Surprised by Doubt. And I would just say, let's think about these arguments. Let's come back to them. Let's talk about these reasons with our kids and our grandkids, those who are struggling with doubt. Evidence is our friend. Evidence is good. We need, to, we, we need that in order to continue to come back to the foundational claims of Christianity. But... We also need to say we shouldn't overplay our hand here. There are strong evidential reasons for the resurrection, but there's always more going on than just the evidence. Historical arguments aren't going to rise to the level of 100% certainty. That's just not how they work. The question isn't, can the resurrection be proven? The question is, what makes that sense? Is it rational, we might say, to wager on the resurrection? And in some sense, I think this is a resurrection we all get up and make. This is a wager we all get up and make every day. So we look at Christianity by looking at this historical claim. I think history helps us here. 
But also, we look at Christianity by refocusing on the person of Jesus. We all need to come back to the Gospels again and again. The goal, again, is to recalibrate faith, not in abstract ideas, but around the person of Jesus, around the story of Jesus. We know that Jesus' execution, that after Jesus' execution, a movement of followers claimed he was still alive. We also know that religious leaders of his day, particularly Paul, had persecuted these followers within a year of Jesus' death. There was claims very early on, even in in Jesus' own ministry, although they were veiled in different ways, that he was God. And the the claim that came very early on was that this Jesus, by the, the disciples themselves, said, yes, this Jesus was God. And one of the remarkable things about this claim in this context, in this Jewish context, was it was a claim made by people who were what you would call strict monotheists. In other words, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. If they had VBS, that would be the VBS verse every year. right? That was their thing, okay? The Lord our God is one. And here in the first century, these strict monotheists were saying, well, actually, there's some sense that this Jesus, this man, was God. Now, we know from different historical sources, particularly the Gospels themselves, that they were (coughs) worshiping Jesus very early on. We see this through the New Testament. So a thought experiment here for just a second, and I hope this doesn't come across as glib, but what would it take, what would it take for you to be convinced that somebody you know, somebody that you have spent time with, is God? What would it take to convince you guys that Pastor Chris is God? The maker of heaven and earth, the source of life, the redeemer of humanity. For us, and perhaps even more so for first century Jews, the idea of worshiping a friend after he dies is preposterous. And yet here we have the early followers were also the people who were traveling with him for three years. And that's what they did. They worshipped. Now, if, if we went on a three-day hike, you wouldn't be much with me, a three-day camping trip. You would be more likely to want to kill me than worship me. <laughs> I promise you that. What kind of person, here's my question, what kind of person lives a life that makes a claim to divinity seem even remotely believable? even remotely possible. I mean, what kind of person makes such an impression that his strict monotheist's friends and disciples come to believe he is actually God? Well, we know what kind of person, we know what kind of person 
makes this kind of impression because we read about him in the Gospels. We read about this life. Jesus' life was all about what he called the kingdom of God. And so another way to ask this question that I'm getting at is, is what is it about this unexpected king that came in a very unexpected way and, lived and, and died a very unexpected death that calls his disciples to wager their life on his kingdom? Well, there's a lot we can say. Let me give you three points here. Number one, it was how Jesus modeled the way of God's kingdom. First century, ethnic and gender divides were deeply ingrained. There were established social hierarchies, and those at the top did not associate with those at the bottom. The custom was even stronger amongst Jews, with traditions like purity laws. And um, it made kind of these social interactions have a worrisome edge to it. And we see that. We see that throughout the Gospels, right? We see the disciples are like, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan woman? Like, what, what's going on? Now, don't touch. They're not clean. Don't touch. So we see this all throughout. And then, of course, who does he hang out with? The tax collectors, the poor, the fishermen, the Samaritans, sinners, women of ill repute. Jesus challenged the bias and broken ethic that caused the religious leaders and the powerful to look down on the vulnerable and the marginalized. This, this is not just the ethic of the broader Greco-Roman culture that he's challenging. This, is, this kind of ethic that he's giving us is not something you can simply observe, observe in the natural world, observe today around us in the natural world. So it was, what Jesus was doing, though, is what he was picking up on the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly the prophets. He's picking up on this, this, this moral vision of the prophets to be merciful and to do justice, but then he perfectly embodies them in his life. And in doing so, Jesus started a moral revolution that has shaken history to our day. From the creation of hospitals to human rights, so much of our, our moral landscape that we simply take for granted today can be traced back to 2,000 years ago to the son of a Middle Eastern woodworker who was shamefully killed with criminals. That was such a life that changed the world. And the disciples were there to see it at the beginning. The walk with. We see it in the Gospels. Second, Jesus turned the tables on greatness from within God's kingdom. Jesus modeled strength and gentleness throughout his ministry. But these things combined in such a way that were really strange and perplexing at first. He was healing the sick. We see this, in, for instance, in Mark 2. He refused earthly power while he was doing it. And yet claimed the authority to forgive sins. And of course, this left people scoffing. He's, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But and so we see in all these accounts how this combination was disorienting and deemed dangerous. When Jesus is on trial, 
before his crucifixion, the high priest asked Jesus if he, is, if he is the Son of God, and he responds, as you guys know, you have said so, but I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now the high priest understands the outrageous nature of this claim, and he considers it blasphemy. He gets it. And we get that too, right? I mean, the reason you guys were, for, were snickering is like we, we all, we kind of laugh at the notion of Chris being God, and rightly so, right? But if we were serious, we would say that's, that's blasphemy. I mean, he's suffering some kind of serious delusions of grandeur. But this, this charge of, well, Jesus is a megalomaniac just doesn't fit, right? This is not how megalomaniacs act. He's, he's simultaneously authoritative, makes incredible claims for himself, and yet he's gentle. He's not hoarding power. He doesn't, he doesn't use his power to take advantage. He's not, he's not seeking out the rich and the influential in order to enhance his, enhance his, whole, his own life. Rather, Jesus invites all who are weary and burdened to follow him. And he promises to give rest. And so he turns to the table. What is greatness? It's those who come to serve. Third thing is he scandalizes with the grace of God's kingdom. He spoke with authority and he challenged the pride of the religious leaders. And he turned the world's assumptions upside down. We see this, for instance, in Luke 15. The religious leaders are getting frustrated. They're complaining. Again, why are they complaining? Jesus welcomes sinners. He eats with them. And so Jesus responds, as he so often does, by telling a story. And you know the story. The young man who demands his inheritance from his father and proceeds to squander it in a faraway country. The son begins to starve and even resorts to sharing food with a pig. And when he finally decides to return home, he expects to be treated with scorn. Everyone expects him to be treated like that. The older brother expected him to be treated like that. And everyone listening to the story would have said, yes, he's to be treated with scorn. And then, yet instead of rubbing it into his face, instead of, I told you so, you should have never wished me dead by, by demanding my inheritance, instead of saying, hey, you wasted it all. When he arrives, he acknowledges to his father that he is no longer worthy to be called his son. And he doesn't do what, the father doesn't do what the religious leaders would have thought he was, should have done. What any self-respecting father would have done. Instead, the father, seeing the son in a distance, races out to meet him with a loving embrace. He clothes them with the best robe and ring and sandals, and they have a party. And this is what grace looks like. This is what true religion looks like. And it was scandalous. And it is still scandalous today. In our world of achievement and meritocracy, in, in, our, in our cancel culture, in our shaming culture, this kind of Forgiveness is scandalous. This kind of unmerited love is scandalous. And we see this 
divine grace embodied and lived out in the person of Jesus. We see this in the Gospels. We see what kind of impression he made on his disciples. And so now we're in a better position to come back and return to that opening question. How did this dramatic shift happen to these earliest of followers? Strict monotheists, and then they begin worshiping Jesus. Yes, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead was surely part of it, but there must have been more. His genius, his ethical teachings, his exalted claims, and the overall shape of his life left this kind of crater-sized impression on the disciples. And they began to imagine, oh, maybe, maybe there's more here. We'll see that tomorrow with Thomas. We'll see this kind of in his climax. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop before I give away where we're going tomorrow. In the, in the accounts of the days leading up to Jesus' death, we read of his anguish. We, we're reminded of the both and nature of Jesus as the church has long confessed. With driving authority, he often spoke about a future judgment, yet before the crucifixion, he prayed in the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup for me, yet not mine, but yours be done. We see the humanity of Jesus. The side of Jesus, this side of Jesus' resurrection, I think it's easy for us sometimes to kind of gloss over the pain and suffering that he experienced in his ministry and on the cross. However, when we look at that, we're reminded that Jesus was indeed human. Yet, even with that all too human temptation to save himself, Jesus lays down his life. In his sacrifice, we find what love and true greatness look like. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. Those who should have been his enemies, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But right after Jesus prayed, in Luke's Gospel, we're told, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And in this moment, where those two things are put side by side, him praying for those who are crucifying him, and then, and then they're just dividing up his garments. It's a kind of injustice that screams. But also the act of forgiveness cries even louder than the injustice. Even at the very end of his life, he was turning the tables. The just dying for the unjust, the guiltless taking on that guilt, evil defeated by good, the king laying down his life for the kingdom. Yeah, I, th- I think it's right, but my family can never believe that I was in some sense God. They know too much about my life. They know too much about my sins. But in Jesus' case, quite shockingly, people who were closest to him, who saw this life right in front of him, came to believe that he was God. The Gospels remind us of the truth, beauty, and goodness in the life that has invited people for 2,000 years to fall down in worship. And so, as we're looking at, we need to come back and we need to look again and again and again as we come to worship. But also, but also, we have to look through. So we've, we've looked at, we've looked at the resurrection, 
We've looked at the person of Jesus, but we also need to look through. The 17th century, I want to jump to the 17th century, another one of my heroes to help me on this point, and that's Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal believed that questions about God and the basic scientific questions should be answered in two different ways. Now, Pascal was a scientist himself, but he saw these as, very, as two very different types of questions. For, pa- for Pascal, the heart is essential to the human quest for discovering meaning and purpose. Pascal called this the logic of the heart. Now, what Pascal meant by the logic of the heart is he said that deeply ingrained in each of us as humans are these instinctive first principles. Things like the reliability of space, motion, numbers. So this isn't in any way irrational things, you would say. But he'd also say that in, these, in the logic of the heart, deeply ingrained in us are things like love and morality. And these first principles of the heart can't be proven, Pascal would say, in the same way you prove a math problem. But they're nevertheless deep realities we assume and we reason from. So here's the upshot. Here's why I'm bringing up Pascal. Stop and consider whether a narrow view of rationality, a kind of math view that kind of simply... Simply kind of narrow, we're just going to use rational syllogisms or math equations to, to live life. Or more expansive view about life and how we should think about deep truths is more reasonable to wager. We can't prove that humans should love one another. We can't prove that we have a moral responsibility to love others and treat them with dignity. Basic logic doesn't get us there. And yet it's a deep moral conviction and even though it can't be proven it doesn't mean it's irrational. Can we prove that humans should possess human rights? That we humans possess human rights or should be treated with universal dignity? That women should have the same rights as men? We can't prove these things But that doesn't mean they're less true or they're not true. And so for Pascal, we need to be honest about our rationality. There's things that we believe, whether somebody's a Christian or not, that they base their life on. So in in hopes of answering the questions about God and eternity, we shouldn't escape the kind of this this narrow logic, but we should have this big, open, expansive view of rationality. And the best way to do this, the best way to do this when thinking about the big questions of life is to leave everything on the table, especially the features of our personhood that seem universal. We have a deep desire as humans to believe what is actually true and not simply believe what we want to be true. We humans can't escape that our visions of love and beauty and meaning and hope and justice and goodness are all somehow tied to how we reason and move through life. And each of these features of personhood is connected to the deeper experience of true joy that we're all after as humans. We all, as the ancients would say, we all want to be happy. And so we navigate our way through life seeking to try to find this happiness, this good life. 
And so in trying to do this, what I'm suggesting with Pascal and so much of the Christian tradition is, is as we're doing that, we need to leave all these, these deep intuitions on the table. And this is where I think to come back to Lewis's metaphor, it helps us. Christianity, once we step into the light to look out, provides this, this way of seeing and making sense of these deep intuitions. So it actually illumines the world when we look through Jesus. We begin to make sense of this quest for joy and happiness and worship. Now, even as I say this, I want to say that the secular framing of things certainly, or an atheistic or agnostic framing of these things, these intuitions, has its own way to explain them. But often they shrink back from from the logical outworkings of their positions. So this is a famous quote I have for you in your notes by Bertrand Russell. And and I think, I don't agree with what he's saying here, but he holds to his position with what I believe is a kind of unflinching clarity. This is what he says, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, that no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must Achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. If Russell is right, and the universe is vast, cold, and pointless, then we are left with a few options, except to, on the one hand, simply despair, or on the other hand, to cobble together meaning for ourselves. I think so much of the modern project, so much of our modern world, our world of achievement and consumerism and those stories that I was tapping into a few minutes ago is trying to do the second. Not despair, but how do we cope? We tap into these stories. But if we wager on those stories, if we wager on the kind of webs of meaning that we make for ourselves, the question still remains, how meaningful is made up meaning? What do we do when those stories inevitably run their course and leave us disappointed? What do we do when our individual meanings fall in the face of our own deaths and the inevitable deaths of the uni- death of the universe according to Russell's favorite story? And then I'd say this. Then I'd say this to Russell or to somebody who was 
trying to kind of follow that other path to despair. Even if you attempt to dismiss the ray of light and follow Russell's logic of despair, you probably won't be able to shield yourself from the light entirely. Light has a way of shining through. We intuitively, this is what I mean, we intuitively live our life like it really matters. We all search for beauty. We all want to love and be loved. And ever since the light of Jesus' moral revolution that I was just talking about penetrated into the deepest parts of Western culture, it has seemed unnatural and difficult to revert back to a previous time and deny these deep moral aspirations that have led to things like human rights, universal love and care for all people, and the, and the very practical things like hospitals to care for people other than just the elite. We desire justice and we sense that each person's life is sacred. Grounded in a historical claim that we see when we look at Jesus, centered on the person of Jesus Christ, so grounded in a historical claim, I meant to say resurrection, and then centered on the person of Jesus as we look at him. This is what happens. The Christian story affirms, explains, and provides motivation to act out these deepest of human ideals. And then when we start and we, when we look at these ideals and these aspirations, we can compare stories. Whether it's those little stories of achievement or the big kind of story that Bertrand Russell gives us, we can compare stories. And here's the thing about it. I find no other story that can do all of what I just described. That historically grounds, that affirms and explains and provides motivation to act on our deepest of human ideas. Finally, so two points so far. We've looked... We've looked at the light. We've looked through the light. Now I'm extending this as we close to stepping into the light. Now, I need to frame this a certain way. And I'm realizing I'm talking to a lot of Presbyterians. (laughs) So don't hear this wrongly. Okay. And if anything else, by saying that at the end, it wakes you up a little bit. Okay, what is he about to say? Doctrines are not the goal of the Christian life. Doctrines are absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. As a guide towards our true destination. Doctrines guide us to God. Too too often, too often, Christian living can be reduced to simply dogma, simply ideas. But at the heart of the Christian way, at the heart of what Christianity is, is this this communion with the living God through Christ. And in this communion with the living God, we're able to flourish. Yes, flourish for eternity, but even now flourish in a broken and fallen world. We need to think about our 
doubt and our disillusionment. That's what we've been doing this weekend. We need to think about the challenges of our cultural moment. We've done that some. We need to think about the stories that we don't so much believe but inhabit because they're the air we breathe. But that's not all we have to do. That's not, none of those things are even the most important. Our thinking should prompt us, prompt us to pay better attention. There's a psychologist by the name of Richard Beck. He is a Christian. And he says this. Faith is a matter of perception. Faith isn't forcing yourself to believe in unbelievable things. Faith is overcoming attentional blindness. Sometimes, because of my discipline and what I teach, I'm asked, as I was the other night, after I was spending some time time with students, they said, if God is present in the world, if we do live in an enchanted cosmos, why don't I sense God's presence more? Now, when I get that, I always want to, and I do, I ask more questions. I don't so I'm not as glib as what I'm about to seem like I am, okay? But one of the things that come out in the course of that conversation that I normally come back to is a few questions for, for anybody who's within your shot. Number one is, well, the main question is, what if God is present, but we have inherited ways of seeing that blinds us to his presence and his activity? What if, as C.S. Lewis liked to say, we're under a spell? What if, if conditioned by the hustle and bustle of our modern lives, God is actually at work all around us, but we, are, we fail to attend to him and his presence and his work? How might we attend to the world differently to begin healing from what that calls this attentional blindness? And so I want to close just really practical tonight with four or five practical things. And for most of you, all of these things you've heard. And yet we need to be reminded of why we're doing that. Number one, gathering to worship. Once I had a grad student come to me and say, I've been struggling with doubt, and I don't know what to do. What should I do? And in the course of the conversation, I was listening to her, and I said, how's life going How's worship going? How's, how's life going with your church? And she said, oh, I gave up on that months ago. And I said, well, why did you do that? She goes, I was smarter than all those people. She was pretty smart. It might have been the case. But she didn't understand much about Christianity, actually. She didn't, because she didn't understand what the church was. See, what she was telling me, what she was describing me, she said, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm finding all the smartest professors and I'm asking them all the hard questions. And I guess in hopes of talking to them, she thought the answers would be given to her and then she would be done with the struggle with that. And it was the very posture that she was going in with wrong. And it was this... This, this inability to see that the church isn't about gathering all the smartest people in one room and answering all your questions. 
But the church gathers because we were called to worship. The church gathers together in response to God's promise, promises to us in Christ. And this is how faith grows and is nurtured. Even on days when we are having trouble believing, especially on days when we're having trouble believing, we need to come in so that other people can believe for us. And we need to come in and worship. By submitting ourselves to the exhortation from the Holy Scriptures and the proclamation of Christ, what you're doing in that moment, even in that moment where you're struggling to wager on Jesus, one of the things that you might consider is wagering on the promise of the Word of God. Wagering on this promise that He works through His church, He works through His people as they gather to worship. This has been what the Spirit has been doing for 2,000 years. So we praise God. We come together and we praise God for His good gifts as the giver. We lament the evils of the world. Not that we fully explain all of those, but we have this position to lament. We know that those things aren't right. We confess our sins because we know we're fallen, but we know of this scandalous grace in Christ. We sing of God's steadfast, steadfast faithfulness. And we point each other forward to the hope of new creation. So we gather to worship, even amidst our doubts and our disillusionment. Number two, and I'll be quicker, we slow down, even as I say this, I'll be quicker, we'll slow down. <laughs> I'm feeling it too, even as I'm preaching against efficiency. I feel like, you guys want to get out. You want to hear me stop talking. Eugene Peterson, the famous um, pastor, once said, every minister's job is to teach people two things. To pray and to die well. To pray and to die well. To rip off Peterson, we might say, to attend to God, we must all learn to pray For praying is a form of dying to self. Praying is an act of trust and dependence that turns us from an inward posture on ourselves to an outward posture to God. An outward posture to depending and trusting on Him. And I fear, and I feel feel this in my own life, and I fear this for our churches, that in a world of time management, In a world of efficiency, our prayer life is often one of the first things to do. And I wonder if it's this prayerlessness that is the cause of so much of our attentional blindness. And therefore, so much the the cause of our doubt and our lack of faith. Remember the Psalms. Remember so many of the scriptural figures are those who are wrestling with God, right? And that's part of what prayer is, coming to God, wrestling with Him. Number three, meditating, not just studying the scriptures. Let me just say on this point, I grew up in an environment where quiet time was important, and I want to say it is important, and inductive Bible study was important. But one of the things I didn't get, and I'm thankful for all that, is a kind of slow, is this way to meditate on the scriptures. Not just check it off the list, but slowing down, reading and praying and reflecting. 
I think there's times for word studies, there's times to dig deep, there's times to, 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 to pick up the commentaries, and there's also time to seek the Lord, that He's speaking through this word, and to prayerfully walk through the Psalms, to prayerfully walk through His word. So meditate, not just study the Scriptures. Number four, spend time touching more grass. Spend time outside in nature. Our daily lives have often been eroded by this kind of productivity mode. This, in a society, we're constantly filled the drive to hurry up and then we instrumentize the word, instrumentalize the world around us. Christianity has always held that the natural world cries out to us and points us to God. I hope you've experienced that this weekend already. Take a walk, enjoy fresh air, marvel at a waterfall. These two are signs, and they work at, you don't realize it, they work at a visceral level, pointing beyond ourselves. This is why in Lewis's fictional screw tape letters, the demon who's experienced in, he's, he's, he's experienced in destroying the faith of humans, he, he chastises his younger counterpart. He says this, You allow him, talking about the human, you allow him to walk down to the old mill and have a tea there, away through country he really likes and taken along. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? What he's saying is here is the modern world gives us these ways to live that are cheap, that are cheap gratifications. Consumerism and this so often the use of technology that turns us into our own little world, hunched in over ourselves. And what Lewis is saying is, is that it's these real pleasures of the world, even the natural world around us, that grounds us into reality and can wake us up to the presence of God. And finally, the last thing I'll say as far as practices is, I think part of our practice, again, is to, to do what I said at the beginning of this talk, which is, yes, and then you come back. There's good reasons. There's good historical reasons. You come back and you look at. You come back to the Gospels and you see Jesus. And you marvel at Him. And you worship Him. And you need to look through and you look at the world through this light that Jesus came into the world and now we see everything through Him in a way that makes, makes sense of the world and makes sense of our deepest intuitions and changes how we live. Let's pray. Lord, you know we love you. Lord, we want to, to believe and we want to live in such a way where we grow in our love for you and our knowledge for you. Lord, help us to be people whose, whose lives reflect you, people who can care for others in the midst of doubt and disillusionment. Lord, help us to live in the true story, the story of Christ, the story of redemption, and to live in your grace. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.